Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Today's seminar guest is Mikkel Thorup. Mikkel is the founder and director of Expat Money, a private consulting firm launched in 2017, which helps clients manage their taxes, obtain overseas residence, and arrange international investment portfolios. Mikkel is also the host of the podcast, The Expat Money Show, and he's the author of the book, Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas, and Make Giant Piles of Money. Mikkel joins us today to tell us about his experience with the expat life, how he travels the world with his family, and how he makes it work for him, and why it works for him, and why he recommends this method of life for everybody. Unfortunately, dealing with some expat and passport issues myself, 
meant that I was late for the seminar for a few minutes. So I was not able to be here for the beginning. So the beginning of the seminar is going to be handled by uh, Peter, who asks the first few questions before I join and pick up. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much for joining us on the show, Mikel. Would you mind starting off by telling us first a bit about yourself and how you became interested in overseas travel and overseas investment? Yeah, absolutely. And very happy to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So for my story, I have to go actually quite far back in time. So when I was a child, I was diagnosed with a learning disability. And what happened was the teacher pulled me out of class and sat me down in a little room. And I think the principal and the vice principal, a couple of people like this were there. And they said, Mikkel, Mikkel, something doesn't work quite right in your brain. And what we want to do is send you to a special school, special school for special boys. So that's what they did. Every day for three years, I got on a little white bus, I took a little white bus across town, and I went to this quote-unquote special school. Only problem was it actually wasn't a special school, it was a regular school with just a special class. So you can probably imagine what happened. I got in a lot of fights, I got bullied and picked on, and it was kind of a really terrible experience. Now, this is no woe is me, woe is me, I'm a victim type of story. Certainly not. I, uh, I got hit and I hit back. There's no question about that. And I would never, ever claim otherwise. But um, it left a pretty bad taste in my mouth for education. Anyways, I went back to neighborhood school after three years. And uh, I thought, wow, it's going to be so exciting. All my friends, they will have missed me and they're going to be wondering what happened to me. Once again, you can probably imagine what happened. Everybody started, you know, gossiping and whispering. Oh, I know, Mikkel, he went to some retard school. Thanks, guys. Very politically correct, very sensitive. You know how children are. I just stopped going pretty much at that point. And then I would fail. And then they would somehow push me through and, and push me along. And I would get into the next year. Yeah, basically, long story short, at 12 years old, I stopped going to school. And at 15, I officially dropped out. I started traveling internationally as a teenager, not shortly after I had left school. And when I started traveling, I started meeting all these incredible people who were going about life in a very different way. They were learning things in a different way. They didn't know about this, you know, horrible experience and, you know, this learning disability that I grew up with. Side note, it's uh, dyslexia, which we kind of know now is not really a big deal whatsoever. But 1980s, you know, they uh, overreact to a lot of these things. I started traveling internationally as a teenager and I never stopped. I'll be 40 in a couple of months. So I've been traveling for close to 23 years. I have circumnavigated the globe over 400 times. I have visited, I think, 100, almost 110 countries and I've lived in nine different countries. And I've really built my entire life around internationalization, flag theory and, and setting these types of things up. And that's what I do for a living. I, I help people to, to move offshore and be an expat. So that's kind of a, a long story to a very simple question, but try to give you me in a nutshell on, on who I am and, and what I do. Well, thanks for giving that overview, Mikel. It's good that you've touched on education there, because later in the conversation, we do want to talk a bit more about the work that you were doing in education now. I understand that you've got a very interesting project in partnership with Michael Strong, mutual friend of ours. And I'd love to ask you a bit more about, about that and how that was informed by your experiences at school. But before we get to that, it would be good to talk a bit more about that experience of traveling overseas. So I think I read on your website that you dropped out at the age of 12, as you just mentioned, and then it was about 15 that you formally left the schooling system. So was that the age that you started to travel? How was it for someone 
to, to just be in their mid-teens and to try and go through airport check-ins and to try and navigate very unfamiliar environments. That's not something that people of that age would, would typically do. How did, you, how did you deal with that? Yeah, so I actually worked for about a year or two after I had dropped out. I saved up money and I was about 16, yeah, 16 or 17. I was 17 when I first started traveling. You know, it was scary at first, for sure, but I'm... I like challenges. I've always really liked challenges in my life. And, you know, it was difficult the first trip. I mean, the first trip was Ireland, England, and Wales. And then after that, I went back to Europe for about four or five months. I was 19 years old. That was completely solo. And I remember being in the UK and basically taking a one-way flight to London and not knowing anybody or anything and just being like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? But after, you know, an hour or two kind of pulled myself together, went and had a drink and, and a sandwich and, uh, and started traveling. And that, yeah, that was four and a half, five months all through Western Europe. And then I ran out of money and then I started traveling in North Africa. So I took the ferry um, down to Tangiers in Morocco and I spent two months backpacking around Morocco. I actually took a camel from Morocco to Algeria and back across the Sahara, which was like three, four days on a camel. So my my fear level pretty much disappeared from a very, very young age, especially on travel. And like I said, 20 some odd years of doing this. And actually, I pretty much never had any problems. There's never been any problems with safety or theft or anything like whatsoever. But uh, yeah, I got over that fear pretty, pretty quick, I would say. Yeah, fascinating. So you started off with just this kind of adventure, wanderlust, going overseas and experiencing travel yourself. And then since then, what you've become best known as is someone who advises people on how to do business internationally or how to manage their taxation or their foreign residences. You have a show, the Expat Money Show, that focuses on this and then You've written an excellent book, Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas and Make Giant Piles of Money. So can you tell us about the transition from just being an adventurer and being interested in overseas travel to doing this, to focusing on the business side of uh, being an expat and working internationally? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I just started just as an adventurer, backpacking, exploring the world. I was working whatever random jobs I could to get money. You know, I was a teenager in my 20s, so just hospitality and and whatever I could get. Eventually, I started getting interested in finance, described myself as an autodidact polymath. So I'm an expert in many different fields, and I'm completely self-taught. I've read well over 2,000 business books and finance books in my life. I started getting interested in finance, and I found options trading and derivatives, and I got totally sucked into this and spent the next seven years, a lot of my free time, maybe not every minute of my free time, but the majority of my free time that I wasn't traveling, interested in finance. From there, I started getting into entrepreneurship. I just really enjoy the idea of creating something. I think I just hit some type of a milestone in my life where I decided I need to create something, which is kind of the same feeling you have also when you become a father. I I have two small children and you know, wanting to build something, build a family, build a business, you know, work in these types of things and and bring something to life, I think is very, very similar. So I kind of crashed and burned a few times in entrepreneurship, which are not really important, but, you know, kind of figured out a formula what works for me. 
And then I started uh, expat money. So I, I took the two things that I loved the most, traveling and living overseas and finance and entrepreneurship. And I just kind of mashed them together. And being such a creative individual as I am, I named it uh, the Expat Money Show or Expat Money is the company. And we started the podcast um, over six years ago now. We've done, I don't know, 210 episodes, something like that. And it's turned into many things. You mentioned the book. We also have a summit. We've got a summit coming up in November. So November 7th to 11th, there's free tickets at expatmoneysummit.com. I do private consulting with high net worth individuals. So I deal with a lot of crypto people, a lot of people who are early adopters for Bitcoin, a lot of entrepreneurs and people who have online businesses. And I help move them, their business offshore. But more than that, it's it's not just business consulting. I deal a lot with the personal issues. So what is it like to be an expat? How do you get your family involved? You know, How do you find a home, somewhere to live? Your spouse, your kids, where are they going to go to school? We deal with all the tax obligations, the tax obligations of the country you're in, the tax obligations of the country that you're going to. We move people's wealth into offshore banks, precious metals, crypto, everything held offshore. Yeah, just deal with all the complications and the filing that might go with that. So it's good. It's a, it's a seven-figure business. And inshallah, we'll grow it to an eight-figure business over the next couple of years. And, and I'm having a ball doing it. I, I love the work that I do. And I, I just think it's amazing every day to uh, wake up and help people through this. Thank you very much. So it looks like Safe has just joined. Safe, for your benefit, we've just done a couple of introductory questions uh, from Mikel on his schooling, how he started out traveling as, as a late teenager and then what he does for his business at the moment. So happy for you to pick up from here. Yes. Um, well, Mikael, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I have a little bit of a relevant excuse for being a little bit late. I hate being late, but I was dealing with the passport bureaucracy and things got delayed and, uh, you know, waiting in line. Yeah. I'm sure you're very familiar with that. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was a very, very fitting reason to come here and be very... Very enthusiastic about hearing you tell me how I can reduce that kind of hassle and headache in my life. <laughs> because it is, um, well, for me, I mean, I, I should add, it's, it's an added level because on top of all the complications that most people usually have, I'm Palestinian, so that means you kind of come pre-installed with nomad status. It, it's now becoming very trendy for people to do the Palestinian way of life, but it's something that I've, <laughs> I've had for generations in my family. So Sure, I understand. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm, I'm excited. We were just doing some intro questions, I guess, or some softball questions, but happy to, to go in whatever direction you like, Safe. Yeah, I think uh, I like to go in all of the directions. I guess we could start with what you see as the main reason for living the expat life. If you wanted to sell it, what are the main draws for you? Sure. I mean, there's many different directions that people might go. I mean, obviously, there's the political angle, you know, there's many people that do not agree with the governments and what's happening in the world right now. There's a ton of divisiveness, a separation of, of ideals and ideology. I certainly have gotten a, a large influx of Canadians after the Canadian trucker convoy and Justin Castro decided to reach into people's bank accounts and block their funds. We've gotten a lot of people when the war in Ukraine started and people do not like what's happening. So, you know, everybody kind of has their different reason on this front from the political side, what it is that they don't agree with. 
And we can discuss any any of those. But the other reason that a lot of people move overseas is because they want a bit of adventure in their life. You know, if you think about it, like, like I'm Canadian. I spent the first 16, 17 years in Canada. I know Canada very, very well. But I don't know Palestine. I don't know many places in the world. So it's interesting for me to go and try to experience life in someone else's shoes from a different perspective and try to understand the world in a, in a completely new way. And that, for me, has been like my personal hobby over the last 20 years is to try to understand the world and, and how people think and where they come from. So, you know, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out there and do the crazy stuff that I have done or spend as much time on these types of things. But I do think that looking at the world as a larger whole and as trying to understand other human beings, I, I think is an attractive reason why. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeadeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah. I guess I'm going to start by being devil's advocate here and trying to get you to convince me of this, uh, given that, you know, I've lived all over the world for most of my life and I've traveled a lot and I can definitely see the good side of it. But, you know, with like with everything in life, uh, the more you do of it, the more the more the marginal utility uh, diminishes. So uh, there's diminishing marginal utility for everything. So clearly, you know, the first time you travel is going to be the most exciting time. But then for many times it starts to get exhausting and tiring. Don't you get the feeling, you know, obviously you've been doing this for a very long time as well, but don't you at some point get the feeling that yeah, there's a lot of differences between different places in the world. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what you're looking for is the same. You know, you're looking for a house, a family, um, whatever it is that you care for, whatever your interests are. You can get that pretty much anywhere. And this wanderlust is, for many people, it's a way to compensate for the fact that they can't just, well, it's not just to compensate. It's, it's a distraction from um, getting what they really are after. So you spend your time traveling rather than uh, buckling down and just, you know, getting the basics that you want. That's an interesting perspective. That's certainly not one that I hold whatsoever. Uh, I've been at this 22 years straight. I've never gotten bored of it. I'm not, you know, trying to search for one particular thing, you know, or trying to find perfection or something like that. 
I enjoy living overseas and, and seeing things from different perspectives. And when you have children and a spouse who are also on board with these types of things, it adds a completely new dynamic to it that I really, really enjoy. You know, you said that obviously, your words were obviously when you first start traveling is the most exciting. For me, actually, that's not true at all. The most exciting is actually right now, traveling with my six-year-old daughter and my son as well, but he's only, he's a year and a half old, but with my daughter and watching her experience things for the first time and play with kids in different languages and, you know, doesn't matter, you know, the color of their skin or rich or poor. I mean, she makes friends instantly and there's no baggage there. And just to watch her experience these things is unbelievable. Like it's just, it's just so amazing. And I've enjoyed every phase that I have been in when I've been traveling and living overseas. And, you know, as to your point about getting tired, yes, I mean, I spent 18 months and backpacked around the world and that was very, very tiring. But as an expat, I lived in the Middle East for eight years. I was in Abu Dhabi for eight years and that was my life. You know, we had a home and we were there and we traveled out from there as the, as I affectionately called the hub and spoke model, but I've not been a digital nomad for 22 years. I've been an expat for 22 years. So there's some big differences uh, in that, I would say. I see. When it comes to taxes, what is the message that you'd give? I think there is, uh, you know, a lot of people say this idea that being rich means you figured out not to, <laughs> how not to pay taxes. Basically, the tax system is... Uh, it's a way, it's just a problem for rich people to figure out how to get around. You know, recently, I th a few years ago, somebody, there was a big fuss about the fact that Trump wasn't paying any kind of taxes, a lot of outrage about it. But <laughs> a lot of the people's responses was, well, yeah, that's what rich people do. They figure out how to not pay taxes. There are generally ways of uh, doing this that are uh, legal. And, uh, you know, being an expat is one of these. So where, where is the advantage? How do, how do you uh, see it and how do you approach it in a way that allows you to reduce your tax liabilities um, while staying legal? Sure. Well, if your question is, you know, why reducing your tax bill is good, I mean, then... <laughs> that that kind of goes without saying in this yeah, uh, yeah. corner of the internet. I'd say, yeah, I mean, well, clearly there's the fact that people don't like to pay for things that uh, don't benefit them, but also there's the moral aspect, which is you're financing uh, criminal entities that carry out horrible things. And, you know, even though I don't really use fiat money at all, it is it is something that weighs on my conscience. I, I, I Since becoming a libertarian and an anarchist, I pride myself on not engaging in coercion. I pride myself in that, you know, I, I don't want to ever take part in anything that uh, imposes against uh, somebody's will, or uses violence against somebody, threatens somebody with violence. It's an enormously important part of me being at peace with myself. And uh, the fact that I am forced to contribute to various governments all over the world through taxation is preventing me from... Uh, reaching that piece. So that's my case for it, but I'm sure you have uh, more to add. Well, I mean, I'm a pretty outspoken libertarian and ANCAP myself. So, you know, for me, taxation is theft. There's no question about it. And absolutely, supporting governments that dropping bombs on women and children. Yeah, I'm not down with that whatsoever. And I will actively, actively go out there to make sure that I am paying no taxes. And even if the alternative is 
structures and filing and things like that, and I need to pay it to a service provider, that amount ends up being more than the taxation. I would still rather do that because I would rather put my money into entrepreneurship and to people who are actually trying to solve a problem. So it's not just a monetary issue for me. It's an, it's an ethical issue for me. You know, I wake up every morning safe and look in the mirror and I'm so stoked to say, starve the beast. Like, like, I know that sounds like super cliche, like jump out of the morning, ready to go. But like, I'm stoked about this. Like, that's what I do for a living. I do it legally and I do it, you know, I follow the rules. But, you know, there are ways to, to mitigate these things. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, a, I'm not an accountant. I'm an advisor or, or a coach or a consultant. But I work with a lot of lawyers. I have full-time lawyers that work for me. And I outsource a lot of the legal work to other lawyers. We always stay compliant. But there are options, and this goes for Americans and for non-Americans, because you know you might be listening to this and thinking, "Oh, but I'm American, so this is not going to work," or "I'm from Australia, and this is not going to work." Actually, there are, in most cases, ways that you can drastically, drastically reduce your tax bill by moving overseas and being an expat. What are you, the most effective strategies that you've found? I guess probably most of our listeners are in the U.S. So for Americans, what would you recommend as you know, ways of reducing the amount of blood on your hands? <laughs> okay, so there's a couple of quick caveats. I'm not giving individual tax advice by any means today. You know, check with your legal provider, licensed professional, et cetera, et cetera. One of the first strategies that we put into place with Americans, or I encourage Americans to look at, is called the Foreign Earned Income Exclusion, F-E-I-E. And I encourage you to go and look it up on the government website, on the IRS website. What it does is it allows you to not pay taxes on your first $112,000 US dollars. Now, there's a couple of caveats in there. It's, as the name implies, foreign earned income exclusion. So you can exclude but you need to be foreign, okay? So there's two tests for this. So you're not going to be able to put this in place if you're you know, living in New York or living in California or something like that. You, you literally need to live in another country. So the first one is called the physical presence test. It's 330 days in a foreign country, not in international waters, not on a sailboat, not uh, flying from one country to another but physical feet on the ground in another country. We usually set this up during year one when we move people offshore. And the second one is called the bona fide residency test. It's a little bit more subjective. The, the physical presence test is objective. It's math, 330 days. But this one is more what kind of case can you make that your, your life is now in this new country. So that will obviously look like uh, having a residency, a permanent residency, a legal right to live and work in the country, but as well as maybe a rental agreement or foreign real estate. If you go to church, then, you know, being member of a church, if you play sports or go to the gym, having a gym membership, having your driver's license, all of these types of things, this will allow you to spend slightly more time in the United States, back home in the United States every year, but you're still not going to be able to like live in the US full time. It's more so you can go and visit your, your friends and your family and things like that. So the foreign earned income exclusion is, is an excellent way to legally reduce your taxes. As I said, it's $112,000. But if you're married, like I am, then it's actually a doubling effect. If your spouse is also American, then it's just under $225,000. So we're now talking, you know, some serious money. 
If it ends up being a lot more than that, then we'll look at other tools in the toolbox. But for sure, you know, $225,000 and living in a place like Panama, where I am, or in Costa Rica or Belize or Nicaragua or the UAE, where I used to live, or many other countries that are quote unquote tax haven countries, you know, is going to do you very well. So that kind of takes care of the, the federal income tax from the US side. I'll very quickly tell you from the state tax because it's, it's not too difficult. Usually, if you come from a really aggressive state who has very high state tax, you might want to move to one of the states that has no income tax. So obviously, Florida and Texas are the most popular. If you were coming from California, then we would probably want to relocate you to one of these states for the first year first. And we would change over your tax status and your driver's license and your register to vote, everything like that, and then move you overseas. And I, I say this all second because, and not first, because if you just try to do go straight overseas and you come from Los Angeles or San Francisco or something like that, then uh, California government will often uh, follow you and say, that's fine about your federal tax, but you still owe us state tax. So you have to deal with both of those issues. So that's kind of the, that's the federal tax, that's the state tax, and then we just have the tax of the country that you're moving to. So when we look at a country, as I mentioned, a tax haven country will be somewhere that has really strong asset protection laws and a favorable tax system. Look for countries that follow what's called a territorial tax system, like Panama and the other countries that I mentioned a minute ago. They actually care about where the money is made and not where you are. The U.S. cares about where you are, not where the money is made. So it really fits hand in glove. So you can legally live in a place like Panama City, file your taxes in the U.S. because you do have a, a legal requirement to file your taxes, no matter where you live in the world, but exclude that first $225,000 as a married couple or $112,000 as a single uh, filing solo. That should do the trick for a lot of people. Otherwise, we would keep money in a company. If it's really millions of dollars, we'd look at renouncing U.S. citizenship. There's many different ways, but I, I think I've talked enough and kind of given you a, a pretty good outlook for the Americans, I hope. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. Very useful. I, I think a lot of our listeners will be just about getting interested in these ideas now, having taken the orange pill and uh, <laughs> realized uh, that their taxes are... Uh, not exactly the uh, contribution to civilization that they thought they were. What are your thoughts on the idea of diversifying your presence onto more and more countries? You know, the, the people discuss, we, we've had Katie, the Russian here before, talk about five flag theory. Are you also in that or are you just more about uh, finding one place and settling there? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent for flag theory, for sure. I mean, I've been practicing this for 20 some odd years now. The way that I look at things now is that there are many different walls that are going up in the world. And as I said earlier, there's a lot of divisiveness. Now, you know, it used to just be we're looking at different countries and just different jurisdictions. I don't think that that's enough anymore. I want to actually look at like cultural divides, religious divide, different rising superpowers and build my other flags on the opposite sides of these walls. And I'm quite contrarian to a lot of people in this because I will participate in countries which most people won't. But from my perspective, if you're you know, involved in Canada, the US and Mexico and you know, 
it's all kind of the same thing. Like it's not really that diversified whatsoever. I would rather be having a place in Russia and a place in Turkey and a place in Panama and a place in Brazil and try to have these in, in very different types of situations where the Canadian government in my case or the US government for a lot of your listeners are not going to have the influence that they can just reach across these borders and confiscate bank accounts or real estate or gold or Bitcoin or anything like this. So I just kind of take it what I would see as the next logical step, but maybe a bit extreme to a lot of people. I see. Yeah. Now, in terms of investing, what are your thoughts on foreign investment as an idea? You're a big proponent of investing abroad in general for its own sake, not just setting up uh, companies abroad so that you benefit from better taxation. Yeah, I look at it first and foremost as diversification. I mean, most people will diversify just with, you know, some stocks, some bonds, and maybe some real estate down the street. And they think that, wow, I'm, I'm diversified. I think that that is all 100% correlated and not diversified whatsoever. So I'm diversifying through geographical locations, of course, but I'm also diversifying through currencies. I'm diversifying through times. As I said earlier, I have uh, seven years background as an options trader, uh, trading derivatives. So I'm looking at time and how I can diversify for things paying out. And as we have seen over the last two, two and a half years, I mean, the capital controls that are coming into place and the restrictions and businesses being closed down, I think that it's just way too risky to have all of your things in one jurisdiction, or as I said a minute ago, even in one, you know, cultural block, you know, when you look at government, intergovernment relations and what they can do and extradition and these types of things, I would rather just be completely different. And I can give you a couple of examples. I mean, we're buying another home in Turkey right now, because first of all, I like to spend time in Turkey. Second of all, I love Turkey. I agree yeah, with you. It's Istanbul is, I've been there five times. I was just there two months ago. It is amazing. There's so much stuff to do. There's so many interesting people, amazing food, and just it's just a great experience. I, I like to call it the capital of the world. It has a feeling of being really the center of the world. Like the, if the world was one big giant country, Istanbul almost feels like it's the capital. It's a real functional large city, which is very rare because it's clean and it generally functions, I think, and it's safer than most, you know, most of the problems that you associate with big cities aren't really there in Istanbul. They have their own problems, obviously, everywhere it does. But uh, great food, great geography, amazing place. But yeah, go on. <laughs> well, and add to that, I love being in a hub spot. So I lived in Singapore back in the day. I lived in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Those are both hubs. I live in Panama City now. We actually have direct flights, Turkish Airlines from Panama City, 13 and a half hours to Istanbul. So it leaves at like eight o'clock at night. I fly business class. Bed goes completely flat. On my last flight, I had dinner, crashed out for eight hours, woke up, had a double espresso and was ready to go when I hit Istanbul. It was fantastic. So that's like a great country where you can have a life where you can build something, you can actually even get your citizenship. So another passport by investing there, they do what's called citizenship by investment. So you can become a Turkish citizen. You can even change your name if you like to have a Turkish name. I think you're required to do that if you become a Turkish citizen. You're required to have a Turkish name, I believe, right? No, you're not required. It's not by law, but it is a possibility. But I would just be very careful with it. Like I've 
I've talked to people who have gone through the process and they just said, you know, be very careful about these things. And, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, problems with passport renewals and things like this, you have to be a little bit careful because when you start having documents in different names, it can add a lot of extra complexity to things. But I still think it is a, it's a very, very cool idea. Um, there's a few other countries in the world where you can do this as well. But the, the real point of, of me bringing up Turkey is that they're their own country and they're a rising superpower. We're seeing the rise of the Ottoman Empire again. And what happens in Western Europe and what happens in the States, they don't get to dictate to Turkey what happens. Same thing with China. My wife is from mainland China. My kids speak Mandarin Chinese. I've been there 20, 30 times. I'm not going to spout China as a bastion of freedom. It's certainly not. But it's an interesting place to have a base. We own a few homes there. We have stuff there. We have clothes. We have bank accounts. We are fully set up. If we had, you know, I don't want to get too dark, but things go really bad in the West, then there's another base for us there. You know, the last two years has been really hard um, looking at China. We used to go three, four, five times a year uh, to go visit my wife's folks. But obviously, over the last couple of years, that's not been the case whatsoever. But um, I, with any of the countries that we choose or, or look at, you know, I live in Panama right now, but, you know, I don't have everything here, not even uh, not even close to everything here. And Panama has had problems in the past. You know, you can go back 30 years and look at Noriega or you can go back just over the last two years and they've not handled a lot of situations. But when that happened, we went down to Brazil. Brazil was wide open. We were in the south of Brazil in a small island called Florianopolis. And we had a great time there for half of the pandemic. And we're not wearing a mask and there was no restrictions. And we were eating churrasco and drinking caparinhas. And it was fantastic. I mean, I just, I loved it. So we're always kind of, we're not going to look at one place. Like I'm not here to say, okay, this country is the best or that country is the best. My point is I have no idea. It's impossible to know what's going to happen anywhere in the world. So you make a call, a judgment on what you know at that moment, the best of your ability, but then try to hedge your bets and try to say, well, what if I'm wrong? What about if this goes bad? Well, what do I have as a backup? A plan B, a plan C, a plan D. How will things work? Do I have a house, a bank account, a company formation, investments? Uh, all of these types of things in different countries and jurisdictions. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's two kind of ways to approach the uh, mess that the world is in right now, which we see uh, among Bitcoiners. There's the kind of inward looking and outward looking uh, orientation. And the inward looking is, oh, the world's going to totalitarian hell. Inflation is going to ruin everything. Supply chain problems. Everything is going to fall apart. What you want to do is buckle down, find a way to become as self-sufficient as you can, get yourself a farm, try and get animals on it, figure out a way to get your energy and water sorted out without having to rely on the rest of the world. Get your uh, kind of prepper mentality and buckle down and prepare to stay grounded where you are for a long time if things get ugly and, you know, uh, defend yourself and uh, be in a place where uh, you can defend yourself. And then there's the opposite approach, which is what you're uh, suggesting, it seems, which is, you know, rather than uh, making your uh, ranch uh, prepared for the apocalypse, invest in having another place in another country, wherein if the apocalypse breaks out here, you can just go to the other place. 
And of course, these aren't entirely exclusive strategies, of course, but they are in a sense exclusive because everything has an opportunity cost. And so uh, making your farm more uh, apocalypse ready by adding, say, diesel generators and solar panels and all these things is an expensive investment. And for that kind of investment, you could buy yourself a house in another country, another continent, in another geopolitical world basically, and, uh, and and have another uh, hedge against it. So th- these are two different ways of preparing. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the idea of buckling down. Do you see it as, um, do you see do you see the benefits from this? Do you see it's good to get attached to one place or get attached to all of these places and have these options? Or you're just, you just want to get out of trouble and you don't want to have to, uh, you know, you, you'll take places as they are. And if they're good, You'll stay there. If they have their problems, you'll just move on. Is that, is that how you think of it? I, that is how I think about it, for sure. I do believe in personal responsibility. I mean, as a libertarian, the non-aggression principle is my, my North Star. But the, the sister or the cousin is personal responsibility. So I want to be reliant on myself, my family, and my community and, and close group of friends. But really, it comes down to me personal responsibility. So in any of the bases that I set up in the world, I do want to have extra water and extra food and extra energy and these types of things. However, I'm not doing it to the extreme where I'm just building one bug out location, a bunker and and going all in on one. Because for me, it's not hedging my bets. Everything I want to do in the world is with the assumption that I could be wrong because I have been wrong in the past and everybody has. And I don't want to have a moment where I put all my hopes and dreams on one location, one place, and things turn to hell. Like, I think that that is just morally crushing and I think is, you know, not wise. I mean, I just don't know another way to say it. So it's got to be some type of a happy medium. So yes, I'm setting up bases. I'm setting up a few bases. I'm not setting up 100 bases and each one of them have nothing in it. But I think a, a couple of different places and being at least moderately prepared so that if something happens or you know that you need to, you know, have enough food and water for a week while you organize, uh, safe passage out of the country, whether that be on commercial or on private or chartering a plane or crossing the borders or whatever that might be. I just think that that's a good way to do it. And I have followed a lot of the prepping things. I have gone down that rabbit hole. And after thousands of hours of research and looking at these things and contemplating and pondering it, my way of thinking about it is diversification through geopolitical countries is is the smartest path. Yeah, and I guess, you know, if I were to think about the main risks that you take by doing this, I guess the, the biggest problem is you can get locked out and unable to leave. And so then th- that's the main threat. So you have to be really nimble in that. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get into that mentality of, oh, no, this place has been through a lot of things before. I'm just going to stick it out and uh, go through the storm, you know, because like, for instance, people, uh, there, there are people like that in Canada who are stuck now in Canada because, uh uh, you know, initially they thought, well, it's just a few weeks or a few months. It's and deer in the headlight. Yeah. And many, many of them took the, many of them obviously fell for the entire uh, hysteria. You know, they were scared at the beginning. And so they thought, oh, yeah, well, you know, obviously the reason they're shutting down the world is clearly uh, it's for our own health. And so it took a while for them to um, revise uh, 
their priors and come to the conclusion that yeah, maybe this, maybe maybe all of these uh, extremely unhealthy fat political leaders locking me up at home and <laughs> uh, giving me um, money to buy shitty food delivered to home and telling me to cook cheesecake as you know my favorite example the uh, premier of ottawa um was teaching his uh, constituents during the lockdown how to make his mom's cheesecake a as these kind of signs start to pile up and you realize yeah this isn't really about making me healthy this is about control it, it can catch you by surprise so having to stay nimble really means as soon as these things begin you know find out where you're panama or you're brazil or where this hysteria hasn't caught on and just move on. And in this regard, it seems, you know, given, given that budgeting is an issue, it seems that being able to stay on your toes is more valuable. And, and, and here, I guess the counter argument is the risk with, with diversification is that, uh, as we said, you can get locked up. But the risk with prepping and the risk with making a last stand somewhere is there might come a point in which you can't no longer stay there because it's completely untenable for whatever reasons, um, security or um, just energy infrastructure or whatever. And then at that point, you're weighed down by all of the investment that you've made in something. And then that begins to weigh you down because you, you're emotionally invested in all this um, you know, citadel that you've built where you imagined you're going to be staying for centuries, uh, you and your descendants. And now, you know, your country has been taken over by an insane lunatic president who wants to do insane things. And you have normalcy bias, which a lot of people have, which is then, well, this is crazy, but, you know, once this president is out of office, then things are going to go back to normal and the good times will come back. But I think that's really the, the process of growing old is becoming cynical about this is that is when you see something go bad, you when you're young, you think, oh, well, that went bad. Here's let's fix it. When you're old, oh, wow, that went bad. It's only going to get a lot worse. How do I protect myself from it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you mentioned an interesting point about setting up these types of things and then lockdowns or closing of borders and not being able to get back in. I want to add one point to this. So what we actually saw during the last two years that a lot of the airports in the world were closed, but they were closed specifically to tourists. A lot of people who are tourists just, just thought that the entire country is closed. In most cases, not in all, but in most cases, if you were a citizen of that country or a legal resident of that country, you could still come and go. So when we set up all of these different types of plans and the flag theory and everything like that, it's about having a permanent residency or gaining citizenship in that country. So you have a legal right to live and work in the country and come and go as you please, even during a lot of the lockdowns. So if you had to come in to do something or get something done, you could do that. Um, you know, with a lot of the digital nomads that are out there in the world, they just try to do what's called border runs. You know, live in Thailand and then every 90 days or something cross the border and, and hop back into the countries. Well, they put a stop to a lot of those types of things. And it was like that in many countries in the world. But if you have residencies or citizenships, then you can still go in there. So going the, the legal way and, and having the correct uh, paperwork. And, and I'm not going to get into, should we have paperwork for crossing borders or should we be free? Of course, we should be free. But I also work in the realistic and, and I'm very pragmatic about all of these types of things. At the moment, we still need these passports and residencies and citizenships. So I'm going to at least play the game on their terms. 
but game it as much as I can. Yeah, and this is much better mental health strategy than uh, <laughs> any other alternative because yeah, I think a very, very important part of mental health is being able to feel like the things that you do every day are uh, fruitful, are having an impact. Like if you were a farmer and you spent 10 years trying to grow crops and you never got crops, you would be depressed. And I think you can apply that to any avenue of work. You know, if you spend 10 years uh, trying to learn to play the piano and you don't make progress, you're going to be pretty upset about it. If you spend 10 years trying to make a business work and it doesn't work, it's going to be very, very uh, heavy toll. So being able to find uh, an outlet for your, uh, you know, individual and moral and libertarian leanings in, you know, I can find a way of reducing how much theft there is in the world. I can find a way of reducing how much um, I can contribute to the beast. Even though you might not kill the beast uh, today, uh, the mere fact that you're actually making a difference, at least in your own life and the life of those around you, is and uh, is a much better way to go through life than essentially getting angry at the TV, which is uh, what people think uh, being politically informed is. You know, you just watch things going on on TV and you get angry at them and you form very strong opinions. But it's good to take matters in your own hand. But of course, this is this is what's so beautiful about Bitcoin and why uh, Bitcoin is such a powerful tool because it allows you to just really take your own destiny into your own hand uh, because before Bitcoin, you were had no choice but to use the global central banking monopoly. Now we have choices. So what are your thoughts on uh, Bitcoin for the expat and how do you use it? I know you're a Bitcoiner. How do you use it? And, you know, individually, I'm interested in your opinion, but also professionally, uh, how do you tell your clients about it and what does it offer them? Sure. So I'm probably a little bit different than a lot of your uh, guests on the show. I'm very much into Bitcoin and was buying Bitcoin at three figures. I am not a huge technical person or, you know, could explain the white paper frontwards and backwards. What I look at Bitcoin for is I'm using it in my everyday life. So I actively am encouraging my clients to pay me in Bitcoin. I would actually rather them pay me in Bitcoin. It's a lot faster and easier and Instead of waiting three or four days for them to do an international wire transfer or the SWIFT or anything like that, we can settle debt instantly. You know, I've built up a, a quite sizable Bitcoin portfolio just by taking payments from my consulting services in Bitcoin. What I have seen over traveling the world for, for many years now and, and being in this space is it's Bitcoin is is good for people who come from the Western world and and it's a it's amazing technology and we love it. However, when you start looking at a lot of the developing countries, it's not like a nice to have or hey, this is a good way that we can, you know, fight back. It's like a life or death necessity. Like like it is an absolute like we need this type of technology. Now, I've traveled extensively through Africa. I sit on the board of directors of a nonprofit in Uganda. Yeah, I've been traveling all over. And you will notice that the majority of the people there don't have access to financial markets. They don't have access to banking. They don't have Wi-Fi in their house or a laptop or anything like that. But what they do have is a smartphone and connected to the internet through mobile data. Usually their phone is from China. They can afford it. It's super cheap. 
and it actually allows them to participate in financial markets. And through different things like DeFi and settling accounts with Bitcoin, and um, it just opens up a thousand and one possibilities that were never there before. I can give you another concrete example. I deal a lot with Brazil. I have Brazilian employees and we travel there. My son has a Brazilian passport. We did birth tourism. So I have a very, how to say, soft spot in my heart for, for Brazilians. Well, a lot of people don't understand that the remittance fees in going in and out of Brazil is absolutely insane. There's so much withholding on it and it's so arduous and it's so much extra paperwork. It's so difficult. It's just unbelievable. So with Bitcoin, you can actually settle things so fast. You don't need to contribute to government. You don't need to deal with all these extra paperwork. Remember last time it took, I think, a month for someone to do a fiat currency exchange to me going back and forth. And it was like an absolute waste of time, a massive waste of his time, my time, and I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. So it's like, I, I'm just a, such a huge fan of using Bitcoin in real life, practical uh, instances. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, my book made me famous based on the idea that my book explained why Bitcoin is not consumer payment technology. Um, the, the Bitcoin network itself is not consumer payment technology. It's more like a settlement technology. A lot of people come up, well, maybe not a lot of people, but some people seem to have the misconception that uh, I think you shouldn't spend your Bitcoin and nobody should spend their Bitcoin and everybody should just save it. And of course, that's not true. I think what I, what I did in my book is try and explain why people are more likely to want to hold on to it right now rather than carry out an on-chain transaction every time they want to buy a coffee. But of course, people will spend Bitcoin, uh, just like any other form of money, just like anything, it will be exchanged. And over time, as the size of cash balances in Bitcoin grows, the likelihood of conducting a transaction in Bitcoin will also grow. So in my mind, it's a chicken and egg issue. It's, uh, most people think you need to pay for your coffee in uh, Bitcoin and you need to convince your coffee shop to accept Bitcoin. And then if we do that, you know, this kind of activist mindset, if we just go and evangelize Bitcoin and tell the coffee shops everywhere to take Bitcoin, then everybody will pay for Bitcoin and then uh, the dollar dies. And that doesn't matter. Even if all the world's coffee shops were to take Bitcoin and everybody who buys coffee anywhere on the planet had to do it with Bitcoin, even if we, you know, we managed to make it so that we buy a coffee monopoly all over the planet and you can only buy coffee with Bitcoin, even if we managed to do that, we still won't be able to unseat the dollar and the Bitcoin won't be a useful national currency and it won't replace central banks and it won't replace the dollar. It will maybe replace PayPal. It might replace Visa. But what matters is when the person who owns the coffee shop holds the majority of their cash balances in Bitcoin and then the majority of their clients hold the majority of their cash balances in Bitcoin. So that's when we can expect those things to take off really. But until then, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be spending your Bitcoin. I mean, I take Bitcoin on my website uh, as well. And as you said, I mean, it's just such an infinitely superior experience. We we take both fiat credit cards and the Bitcoin Lightning through OpenNote. And in both cases, you know, we do it through an intermediate we're not running our own lightning node. We're, we're having open node handle it. We pay less than a third of the fees on open node than we do on credit cards. So we make more money when you pay us with Bitcoin than if you pay us uh, with fiat. 
And in terms of running it, you know, I, I, I handle the complications that happen with both. So sometimes there's problems with open note that a, a, an invoice was not paid fully. There was a difference usually in the exchange rate between the two wallets. So somebody will pay a little bit less. That's kind of, you know, every month or two months, three months, we need to deal with one of these issues. And it just, you know, we email them and they pay extra or we just accept it. And that's it. And uh, whereas with fiat, you know, it's uh, the amount of uh, nail pulling that you have to do over payments and every time going through my bank and their bank and the credit card company and the payment processor. And it's just, it's a pain in the neck and it's, 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 it's definitely a dying technology. <laughs> definitely. And what we're seeing now is capital controls happening all over the world. Now, they might not call it such, but it, it's certainly there. And I kind of liken it to what's happened in social media where people are being shadow banned. I think that's happening with a lot of countries and a lot of people who are dealing with fiat currencies. We've certainly noticed it with a lot of my clients who are paying me from Canada. All of a sudden, you know, they get called back in and they need to make an explanation. What is this payment for? And why are you sending so much money out of the country? And, you know, it can take days. And, you know, it used to take like, 48 hours, let's say, to do an international wire transfer. Sometimes now it's taking a week, two weeks. I had a client of mine who sold her house and was moving the money down here to Central America and sold the house. Money went into the bank account. They made an international transfer. Then a couple of days later, they got on a plane and they came down here to Central America. And then days later, weeks later, they're asking like, where's the money? Where's the money? What's going on? And then they said, oh, it got uh, flagged as fraud. So it got sent back. You're going to have to go back into the bank to resend the transfer. And it's like, can't do it. <laughs> She's already gone. She's already left the country. And now there's just so many problems with these types of things. And imagine staring at the ceiling every night when, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of yours is just disappeared. You know, you don't know where it is. You don't know when it's going to arrive. You have no idea what's going on. The stress level and the anxiety and the mental, what that does to your mental health. I mean, that's absolutely brutal. You know, with Bitcoin, yeah. you know what's happening. You know in real time what is happening. I mean, there's so much to be said for that. It's incomparable. I, I, I don't have $200,000 uh, lost with banks, but I have had small sum that has been lost for now 18 months. It's been literally 18 months of me trying to get that money out of the bank. I'm at the point now where I'm seriously considering hiring a lawyer or reporting it to the police because the bank is just completely lost. They just keep putting me through their thing. I mean, maybe there is an organized criminal uh, ring inside the bank that's doing this because the way that they've managed to get rid of uh, my uh, complaints has been pretty impressive. But most likely, it's just fiat technology in fiat world. And it's just such a giant organization and it's so inefficient that it's all built on a manual basis. That's, that, that's why banks have so much trouble scaling because ultimately, at the bottom of it, it's all built on authority. It's all built on fiat. It's all built on what the US Central Bank says. And then everybody has to just follow the orders from above, whereas Bitcoin is built on cryptography. There's no authority. If you have the private key, you can move the money. Doesn't matter what anybody thinks, doesn't matter what anybody says, your private keys move the money on the network. It's just such a different way of organizing payments that I can't see any serious competition between the yeah. two. Absolutely. I agree with that. In the long term. Yeah. 
So in terms of passports, uh, what are what are your uh, thoughts on getting more passports? What's the case there? Um, you know, obviously, but uh, uh, the, the diversification, as you said, but uh, is, is do you find that to be necessary or is it just, you know, establishing residence more important? Yeah, I mean, the more the better. Absolutely. As long as you can keep track of them all and keep them active and everything like this. But really, if if I had to choose between having a half a dozen, but all in the same jurisdiction or having two or three, but in different jurisdictions, and I mean jurisdictions, what we were talking about before, opposed to just countries, but I think you know what I mean. I would, I would take the latter because I just think that the the day and age that we're entering into, I think that that's going to be the name of the game. Now, there's many different ways that you can get a citizenship. You can do citizenship by investment, like we were talking about Turkey. They have a $400,000 real estate investment, which will allow you to become a Turkish citizen. I mean, there's a couple of hoops you're going to need to jump through for sure, but that's an option. There's countries in the Caribbean that would also qualify for this and, and a few other places in the world. If you have ancestry, if you have you know, your your family is from Europe. There's many different countries in Europe that will allow this. So your your folks or your grandparents or even in some cases your great-grandparents, you might be able to get a passport that way. So think like Ireland or Polish or Italian or Lithuanian or Latvian or I don't know. There's, there's so many countries over there now that are uh, offering citizenship by ancestry. There's naturalization. That's the, the, the process of actually living in a country for a certain amount of time. And then from that, applying to be naturalized to go through the process and get a citizenship. And then there's, you know, other random things. You can do what we did with birth tourism and fly down to Brazil. Uh, when my wife was six months pregnant, give birth in Brazil. And because he's born on the soil, he automatically becomes a Brazilian citizen as well as other citizenships we have because I have them, then he gets them. But there's many countries that do things like that. If you marry someone from another country, there's a possibility of either getting the citizenship straight away or a fast track to their citizenship. There's religious ways that you can get. There's many different ways that you can go about getting a citizenship. So yes, a residency is fantastic and I encourage everyone to get residencies. It's usually a lot easier, a lot more affordable and less time. But if you are able and you have the option, then going for a citizenship and, and with that, the passport is definitely the way to go about it. What's the really main added benefit of birth tourism, giving a passport like the Brazilian to your, what's the advantage? I presume you've already got a, a whole slew of passports that he's going to, getting, to get anyway. Where's the marginal added value from Brazil that would require that would justify you know taking a pregnant woman to a foreign country that she doesn't know and trying to get her to uh, have birth in a completely alien environment sure so there's many different things my wife is quite adventurous same as I am so we look at it as something that's fun to try out it's a it's a theory a hypothesis we have i've been writing about it for tourism for many years and when we had the opportunity we wanted to go and test it for ourselves so that is kind of one aspect you know i guess the add-on to that is that now i can talk intelligently about this because we've actually gone through it. I'm not just doing it academically or you know, writing a blog post about it, but I have no idea what I'm talking about. I try to test this stuff myself. Does it really work? Does it work the way that we expect it to work? You know, How was the reaction? What was our experience like? So that's from one front. Now, 
for the advantages for my son, I see Brazil as certainly maybe not a rising superpower, but a a rising country for sure. They have something like 210 million people that live in the country, which is all of uh, all of South America, Spanish speakers combined. Think how many countries there are in South America. And Brazil has as many people and as much influence as all of those countries combined. That's incredible. There's the language benefits. I have my, my daughter speaks four languages. We're going to start when we move down to Brazil at some point, have her learn Brazilian Portuguese as well. So it's another important language. My son automatically will get the Brazilian passport, which will give him additional travel benefits. So for example, as a Canadian citizen, we both have, or we obviously have Canadian passport. Now, Canadians cannot go to Russia without a visa, but Brazilians can. So that's a way that you can actually go to another country that you wouldn't normally be able to with that passport. Another benefit is that because I am the legal guardian of a Brazilian citizen, I can apply for what's called the family reunification visa, which is a fast track to permanent residency. And as soon as I have my present permanent residency and it's done through the family reunification, we can actually apply for our citizenship after two years and, and get a Brazilian passport. So it's actually not just benefits for, for my son, it's actually benefits for my, me and my wife and, and, uh, and our daughter as well. She even gets it faster as a sibling. So there's many things that stack on top of these. And, you know, inshallah, we will have a third child hopefully next year, and we would love to do it in a third country. You know, my daughter was born in Abu Dhabi. My son's born in Brazil. You know, I don't know if we'll have a boy or a girl next time, but a third country in a new, a new passport and a new experience. I just think that's cool. I just think it's fun. You know, it's, uh, it's just all benefits. I don't see any downside to these types of things from my, my perspective, my situation. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat, but it's a little uh, less voluntary on my part and more driven by various hyperinflations and uh, totalitarian takeovers and geopolitical wars and ethnic conflicts and all of that stuff. So it's encouraging to uh, hear this, uh, to have a, a more positive spin on to put on it. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, at some point, some point, sometimes you do get tired from traveling a lot and from going through a lot of the resettling. I think this is the kind of the most uh, annoying thing. You know, if you if you live in the same place, you know, you set up your house and you have your mattress and all of the things that you like, and they're just there. And a lot of those things stay there for 10, 20 years, and you never have to worry about them again. But then every time you travel, you need to set these things up again in the way that you like it. But of course, with technology, this just keeps getting easier because more and more of the things that I need in my life are all ending up in my laptop and in my phone. And so it's just getting more and more easy. And I think the other advantage that I would give for it is uh, to go back to the earlier point that I made, you know, there's diminishing marginal utility to travel, but there's also diminishing marginal utility, of course, to staying where you are. In fact, that's where the diminishing marginal utility really kicks in, that you you get bored and uh, you, you get bored of the things you are. But I think more important than just bored, and this is an entertainment, the problems become much more of a burden the longer you suffer them. So you go to Canada and you spend a couple of months in Canada, it's perfectly fine. But if you spend a long time there, then, you know, 
the problems just keep piling up and the, the high taxes, the totalitarianism, the insane medical system that doesn't exist practically, um, the horror of knowing that if your daughter gets sick and you take her to the ER, you're just going to have to watch her sick for hours and hours in a filthy emergency room next to drug addicts. So, you know, that makes a place tolerable for short periods. But the longer you stay there, the more these problems become serious and the more likely they are to affect you seriously. You can tolerate being in a place with an unreliable grid for a couple of months, a couple of years. But after a couple of years, it just really gets to you. And I know this for having lived in Lebanon. It's, it, it becomes unlivable. You can tolerate it for a while, but then after a while, you just can't. So... <laughs> I guess the case would be that, you know, replace your problems with new ones. And then uh, that's you can't solve problems. There is no perfect place. You'll never be able to find the perfect place. But, you know, if you suffer of the problem, if you suffer the problems of Canada for a couple of years and the problems of Brazil for a couple of years, the problems of Panama for a couple of years, that's a lot less hassle than suffering the problems of any of those particular places for all of your life. Correct. And I try to always look at the best of every country that I go to. I'm always protecting myself from the downside. I'm very pragmatic, but I'm a very upbeat and passionate and excited human being. And like I said, I got a wife and kids and I got, you know, I got a lot of great things going on in my life. I'm very grateful for what I have. So every place that I go to and I spend a lot of time in, I'm always trying to look at the best things there. And if there is a better place that has something, well, then we'll go and do that. I mean, we do, okay, we talked about birth tourism. We do medical tourism as well. A couple of years ago, I, my mother needed eye surgery and a couple of other things done. She was living with us in the UAE. So we flew her over to Korea, which has some of the best medical facilities in the world. And we had her stuff done there. So that's a good example of the country that you might be in that doesn't have something that you want. Well, then jurisdiction shopping for somewhere that can offer it at a better price and a higher quality and faster. You know, yeah, I would never want to go through the Canadian medical system. People always say, oh, but it's free. It's like, <laughs> no idea about economics whatsoever. I mean, it makes no, so many people are just really don't understand what's happening. I, I blame public education. I'm a, yeah. a big one for homeschooling and world schooling and these types of things. Yeah, that was my next point. Before we got to that, just a small point on Canadian healthcare. I've been on Twitter for a very long time, and the most popular tweet that I ever made was a few weeks ago when I was talking to a relative in Canada, and he was telling me about the joys of his adventures with the medical system there. He's had a back injury for three years and has not been seen by a specialist for three years. It was about a year before COVID when he got injured and or a few months before COVID. Or no, I think it was a year before COVID or so. And he got put on a waiting list and then COVID happened and it's just not been seen since then. And, and I remember I've been to Canada, I've been to an emergency room once with my daughter. I, I speak yep. from experience. You know, th th that feeling of 4 a.m. and your daughter has an, um, an, an infection and you're worried and you'd like to get somebody who's seen an infected child before in their life, take a look at them and you cannot do it. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what your child is going through. It's illegal for someone who has any expertise in this topic to see your daughter. If you find somebody and you tell them, hey, can you please take a look at my daughter? 
I mean, they, if they do it for free, then it's fine. But if you choose to compensate them, then you and them could go to jail. And of course, uh, you know, expecting people to do things for free is never a sustainable strategy for anything. You don't want anything to last on that. So you, you, your only option is to go to an emergency room and uh, you're there, you're treated, you know, since it's free and since everybody is treated equally, that means a five-year-old girl with an inflammation is very is treated exactly like the 35-year-old homeless uh, drug addict who comes in every night to the same ER room and says, I'm sorry, I have a headache. I don't know what's wrong with me. And they have to do all the tests to them and then conclude that, oh, okay, well, maybe we should just put you on some painkiller because the only thing, the only reason they're there is to get the painkiller. And they know what they need to say. You know, this hurts and that thing hurts and this is what I feel. And if you say the right things, and spend enough time in the ER, then you get your drugs. And for many people, this is a way of life. Like th this is it. You go, and you wait in the ER, and you take up the time of the doctors, and then you get your free drugs. So you're forced to wait behind this guy because it's uh, free medical care. So uh, yeah. So the tweet was basically: Canadians will wait 18 hours in an emergency room, will wait two years on a waiting list, and will pay half their taxes in uh, half their income in taxes. And then they'll think, oh, well, it's, isn't it great that we have free health care? It's, it's, it's astonishing. Well, I mean, tell you, introduce your friend to, to me. We'll fly him down to Columbia and we'll see a specialist next Tuesday, okay? Because, I mean, there's so many options out there that, you know, you can solve. And it, you don't have to be a multimillionaire for these types of things. Like, it's, it's actually way more affordable than with people with would imagine. Same thing with insurance. I get a lot of Americans who, you know, think about uh, private insurance that it's way too expensive. You know, I'll never be able to afford it or it's 20, 25, $30,000 a year. When you live as an expat, actually your insurance is probably going to be like for a family of three, family of four, you're probably looking at six, $7,000, $8,000 a year for everybody. And that's inpatient, outpatient, drug plan, the whole kit and caboodle for everything. And that's like a quarter of the price. So it's like, okay, you're going to get seen really fast. It's not that expensive. We deal with your tax situation. So you actually get a eliminate your taxes. You're living in a country that has a ton of sunshine and natural vitamin D, which has good for you. You naturally eat organic food because they're not selling and uh, spraying Monsanto crap all over everything. You go outside because the weather is amazing. So you play sports. You're with other like-minded people, which is good for your mental health. It's like all these things start to stack on top of one another when you become an expat. So those are like non, you know, financial reasons and things that we don't necessarily talk about but are all added benefits with this type of lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. What are your options? What are your recommendations for people who are stuck in the Canadian? Well, for the Canadian gulag is obviously you got to leave. But if you're in the US uh, medical system gulag where you know, you're signed up to this incredible insurance plan where you pay them tens of thousands of dollars so that you can pay more tens of thousands of dollars when you do get sick in co-payments. Do you suggest just not playing ins the insurance game at all in the U.S. and just paying out of cash? My, my advice is I'm trying to help people move overseas. So if, if people are not, you know, okay, I, I, I work in two different buckets, you can see, safe. So, I mean, I have the, the 
the first bucket of people or the first group of people who are, I am done. I am done with Canada. I'm done with the States. I'm done with wherever they are. And they are looking for greener pastures. And we deal with the whole thing. What we said before, the tax issues, immigration issues, restructuring, investments, everything like that. And we're just getting them out as fast as possible. And then we have the second group of people, which are, I need to have a plan B, a plan C in case things get worse and I need to actuate this plan and you know, pull the trigger at some point. And I want to be able to sleep soundly at night knowing that all of these extra plans are in place. And I'd say most of my people are like 50-50. Now, obviously, from the group, the first group or the first bucket of people, it's very easy to deal with the insurance. Now, for the second group where you know, you've decided to stay for whatever reason, maybe, you know, family or social pressure, or I don't know what it is. You know, I don't have a, a great solution for you on the insurance front or dealing with the healthcare system in the United States and Canada, because it's an absolute mess. I wouldn't want to try to help someone navigate such a messy situation. I would rather just help them move them from bucket two into bucket one and help them to move overseas and deal with all of the issues as a as a real solution, not as a, a little band-aid on, on like a huge problem. Does that make sense? No, of course, it does make sense. Uh, but I mean, people will still visit the US um, if they leave. They're still going to want to come back and visit their yeah, friends and family. Then you can family. get individual travel insurance for that trip. So the way that normal insurance for international health insurance will work is you can do the entire world or you can do the entire world excluding the United States. It's usually those two prices. If you include the US, then the price is going to be like double. It will be a ridiculous amount. And that doesn't matter if you're just going to go for like a day to the US or you don't go at all or you're going for a couple of weeks every year. So my suggestion would be just do the entire world, excluding the US. And then when you plan a trip back to the US, just get regular tra uh, travel insurance, which is going to cover you for emergency services, you know, ambulatory type of issues. You know, if you get into an accident and then you just pay for that. All right, I'm going from... December 1st to December 10th or whatever it is, I'm making updates. And then don't worry about it for the rest of the year. That would be my suggestion on that. Yeah, it makes sense. And in terms of education, you mentioned you have kids and uh, you know most people when they think of this idea of travel and nomadism, they think it's something for uh, single people or at least couples that don't have children, kick your heels back and enjoy life and um, travel around. Not, not the sort of thing that you generally associate with having kids. People think kids, you know, you get locked down. They're like a ball and chain and you need to be changing diapers all your life. But uh, I think you and I are uh, living counterexamples to that. What are your thoughts on how to make this work for your kids? Sorry, so you convince yourself and your wife that you want to travel and take adventures, but you know, doesn't a four-year-old just want to be with their friends and like they can't really tell the difference between most countries? Are they really gaining anything from this travel at, at a point where what they get to experience from the world is just pretty much the same anywhere where to the point where it doesn't really matter? And, and, and most of the things they experience before seven, they're going to forget anyway. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack on this and, and I'm very happy to discuss it. First of all, like I never had to convince my wife to travel. She traveled to 50 some odd countries before I ever met her. So she has a ton of travel experience and was interested in this type of lifestyle from the beginning. The second thing is, 
I personally believe that the children should fall in line with the parents type of lifestyle opposed to the parents, you know, falling in line with the kids and what the kids want to do all day long or how they want to live their life. And maybe I'm a horrible person for saying this, but, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit conservative in this regard. You know, I think that as long as the kids are protected and they're safe and they're loved, then they're going to blossom no matter where they are in the world. Um, you know, we are there to support our children and to help them and to guide them, but we don't let them dictate how the day is going to go or how everything is going to unfold. Can you imagine planning your day around the schedule or, or the wants and the desires of a six-year-old little girl? I mean, she has no idea what's going on. She would be eating ice cream all day and, and that would be it, you know, playing and, and eating ice cream. So you have to have a bit of responsibility. Now, as for what she's going to get out of travel, I believe, and, and this is a, once again, a hypothesis, and we will see how the next 20 years go, but I believe she will be incredibly open to different situations and have been challenged so much in her life that she will be so adaptable to pretty much anything that you will throw at her. And I believe that her self-confidence will really stem from these types of things. I certainly know that during my 20 some odd years of travel, that my self-confidence has really grown because you could drop me in any country in the world. And I'm quite confident that by the end of the day, I'll have a roof over my head and a warm meal and probably a beer and, and a buddy to have a conversation with. That self-reliance, I think, is so important. I've seen it in myself and I'm, I believe that it will really come through with my children. There's many other things like we talked about languages. My daughter speaks native level English, Mandarin, Chinese, and Spanish, like all native level. She's learning to read and write in all of the languages. We're now teaching her Russian. So she has private one-on-one -on -one Russian lessons and she goes to her piano class. We found a piano teacher that's from Russia. She does all her piano in Russian and she watches her cartoons in Russian. That those four languages are going to open up so much opportunity for her around the world. And at some point when, you know, she's already been to Brazil, but, you know, when we decide we want to spend a larger amount of time and she learns Brazilian Portuguese, that is just going to, like, there's just so many doors that will be open to her. So that's kind of from the traveling side. Now, from the, the homeschooling and the world schooling side, there is no way in hell I would ever send my child to a state-run school. And if that's like normal is to, you know, this all this woke culture and, and what's going on and transgender this and, you know, tampons in the, the, the boys' bathroom and stuff like that. Like, I don't want my children to have anything to do with this. It's just so wacky and weird. So... I want to know what type of content she's consuming, who she's associating with, who she's learning from. I want to see all of those types of things. You know, people will say, oh, well, then she won't be socialized. Listen, I don't want her to have that type of socialization. You know, I want to know the other, the kids that she spends time with. You know, we do, uh, we do like homeschooling co-ops. So, I mean, my kids are downstairs right now doing art class. We hired a private art teacher three days a week for two hours. And we have some of the, the neighborhood kids who come over and do art classes, private art classes. That's amazing. Like, I don't, I don't know. I just, uh, 
I'm really against state-run schools, you could say. <laughs> One of my pet peeves here, and Daniel as well, we've had a couple of episodes where I was discussing this with Daniel Prince, who's uh, on this call. Um, the, this idea of socialization, I find it hilarious because the idea that you were stuck in a room with 20 or 30 people your age, and you're going to be in that room with the same, more or less the same group of people for 12 years of your life. That is not socialization. That is not preparation for life. That's not how social life is. Once you leave high school, there is never going to be anything that's in any shape related to, similar to that, unless you end up basically at the military or unless you end up basically working uh, effectively a subordinate menial job where you just need to be moved around like a piece of equipment where, you know, somebody just bosses you around and, you know, the workers come in and they're told to do this and they're told to do that. Essentially slavery, basically. In both cases, both of those things are places where the person's own individual will is completely subjugated to the collective. In the military, you can't think. You just follow orders. You shoot, you run, you climb, you do what they tell you, and, and you can't think. And that that's that's the socialization that schools prepares you for. And, you know, with menial labor or modern corporate slavery, it's also the same thing. You know, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It, it's uh, all about just subjugate yourself and do what you're told to do. And that's not what social life is. In fact, uh, the vast majority of life, you know, if you're not in the military and if you're not in corporate slavery and if you're not in um, uh, menial labor slavery, then your life consists of an, a very large number of consecutive voluntary interactions with people. At every stage in those points, you're voluntarily choosing to interact with somebody. And at every stage, that somebody is only able to secure your time and attention because you they are respectful to you and so that's how civilized society is it's, it's based on people voluntarily agreeing to be part of things together so you don't have to worry about the kids in your daughter's art class doing nasty things to her like you would if the same kids were in school because this is your house your terms and you voluntarily choose to send your kids and they voluntarily choose to do it and your kids will is the most important thing to you. Your kid is not just one out of 500 drones in one institution. And then if two of the drones are fighting with one another, then for the teacher, this is just, oh, kids being kids, let's punish them both or let them both get away with it or whatever. <laughs> We've got propaganda to churn through. We can't be stopping for every single conflict to resolve it and to solve it properly and to make sure that people aren't aggressing against each other. So you end up in the situation where you cannot impose your respect on others you cannot have so you, people don't have respect for one another because they know that i can disrespect you and you can't do anything about it you're stuck in the class you have to stay in the class for another 10 years with in the same classroom together if you get kicked out of school it's your problem so you have to suck it up and take it or you know you have to respond in ways that are not civilized you have to fight you have to learn to uh, start getting into all of this dynamic as opposed to the way that we resolve conflict in real life, which is, oh, well, you know what? I don't like working with you. I'm going to quit. I'm going to go work with somebody else that I like working with. I don't like the way you talk to me. I don't like the way you disrespect me. I don't want to be part working with you. And so I, I think it's the, the whole point is to not socialize them in the way that school socializes them, because that's socialization built on the idea of subjugate yourself to the will of others. It's it's really training. It's like it's like training dogs where you just train the dog that when the owner says sit, you know, you stop whatever you're doing and you sit. And that's training. That that's what schooling is. It's 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 more accurate to call it training. You just 
activating mental circuitry in people's brains that um, gets them to react in certain ways to stimuli. So you hear the bell, you sit down and you do this, you listen, you subjugate yourself to authority. And that's, I mean, that's not what I want for myself or for my children. And I think there are better ways of teaching discipline, of teaching mathematics, of teaching uh, arithmetic, of teaching all of the things that you want to teach your kids. There are ways of doing it without having to destroy their will. Oh, very well said. And I probably couldn't have said it better myself. The one point that I do want to add to this is that when you put your child in a classroom and there's one teacher and 30 or 35 other kids, your child is actually learning how to be an adult from children, from people who don't know what they're doing. So bad behavior, that's what they're learning at all fronts. And you're certainly right. There's no other instance in humanity where you are only going to be around kid, uh, people that you're exactly the same age as. So my daughter's spending time with people who are older than her. She's spending time with people who are younger than her. She's spending time with adults, with grandparents, with a whole mix of different things. Now, for the kids that are slightly older, it's fantastic. It's a very much a give and take relationship. So my daughter learns how to behave from someone who's just slightly further down the path, maybe two or three years. And for that child, it's a great experience for them because they now get the what it feels like to take care for someone and learn responsibility at a certain level, you know? And it's the same thing, you know, my daughter's six, my, my son's one and a half, 15 months. So now my daughter learns how to care for her little brother and, you know, she participates and, you know, that's an amazing experience for a child to have. The kids who are over right now doing art class, I can, I can hear them playing downstairs. One is four years old and one is eight years old or seven years old or something like that. So there's three different levels, you know, spaced out one to two years between each child. That's an amazing opportunity for everybody involved. It's not just a one directional type of thing. It's a give and a take. It's a win-win on both of these types of things. Anything that you can do for this for your kids, I, I fully, fully, fully support. Absolutely. And, and when, when there's variety in the group, I think the dynamic is a lot healthier because there's natural roles that they fit into. So, you know, the older kid will be the one that's most responsible and the younger kids will, you know, will look up to them. There'll be a more cooperative dynamic. Whereas when everybody's the same age and they're all in, stuck in the same place it's it's very competitive and it becomes very tit for tat it's it's you know who's going to be the boss who's going to be the one who gets picked at and that kind of dynamic comes from this kind of cattling of kids into this unnatural environment rather than you know the, the all the five-year-olds being distributed into groups of five and six and 10 and two and three and getting to enjoy all those things and getting to learn from different kids um, you put all the five-year-olds together and you just get um, monoculture, really. It's, a, it's, it's educational monoculture and it's, it's stunting and it's stifling. I think uh, I watch, you know, two-year-olds playing with groups of kids that have kids as old as 12. You know, there'll be a group, like in family gatherings, there'll be kids from 12 to two. And the two-year-old can barely understand anything that is going on, but you can see that they're the one that is the most excited <laughs> from all of them because they get to feel like they're one of the big kids. It's sad that, schooling takes that away. Yep. I mean, that's why I dropped out of school when I was 12 years old and completely self-taught. So I understood these things. I understand that public education was violence since I was a child. And that's why we have 
you know, I'm a big, strong proponent and I talk on a lot of homeschooling podcasts about these types of things and speak on stage about it. And that's why, you know, I live what I preach. Like we homeschool our kids. We, I believe in it so much that, you know, we've gone out there and created an online high school with my business partner, Michael Strong. It's at expatschool.io and it's based on libertarian values. So the full name of the school is Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship, because I think that name really says everything. You know, there's so much for being able to create something and coming from a viable moral compass and the children being raised inside that, I think is, I think it's just amazing. And it's, it's, I'm so happy to be a part of the project. So happy to be able to have an alternative out there for families who are looking for something different, who do not want to put their children in, you know, forced coercion, which is state run education. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on online education and, and the kind of uh, online versus uh, meat space divide when it comes to education? So your high school is online, but what have your, been your impressions about online education so far? So there's a couple of different categories. There's some online programs which are just video courses where the child just watches and does homework themselves. That's not us whatsoever. We do Zoom calls like we're doing today. There'll be a maximum of 15 kids per class. And the the teacher, we don't even call them teacher, we call them guides, is based, is there to, to help facilitate conversation. A lot of the education that we do is based on Socratic thought. So a lot of conversation about ideas. My business partner, Michael Strong, literally wrote the book on this. He's actually wrote two published books on Socratic teaching and an amazing, amazing man. I think that it's important that children still spend a lot of time physically around one another. So that means, you know, I'll give you examples. My daughter goes to the park on a regular basis. She goes swimming on a regular basis with other kids. She does karate four days a week. She does two hours of karate. So she's a little ninja. She does the art class. She does piano. She has tons of other things. But we also complement that with online education. Now, with online education, you also have the benefit that you can hire the best guides or teachers in the world and go through programs that, you know, is not just some random average person. You have no idea. Are they good? Are they bad? What are they teaching? You can really get some fantastic people to work with on these. We also do trips for the school. So a couple of months ago, the kids went to Greece. So uh, this was for the slightly uh, older because the school goes from ages eight to 19. We have uh, three different levels of program. And a lot of the kids went to Greece together and there was parents that went and the experience was amazing. Next year, we'll have the Greece trip, but we'll also have a domestic US trip and we'll have a trip down here to Panama. Uh, we have four or five families who are going through the school who are based in Panama. And then ones from Canada or the States or from Europe or wherever those families are located, they can also come and join and they can meet in person and see what that's like and go explore something. So for example, we have the Panama Canal here. It's an amazing piece of technology and engineering. They actually get to go and see it in real life, not just read about it in a book, not just see pictures of it online. They're going to actually have a chance to go and visit this. It's the same thing with all of the trips they do. They get to see it themselves. So it, it just adds so much richness to the experience. And for my people as expats, I really wanted to start this because as a private consultant, one of the main problems was people were like, okay, well, what happens when we move overseas? What are the schooling options? I want to do this, but I've got kids. So instead of just complaining about it, 
we decided to actually go out there and create a solution for it. So if your family is a digital nomad, if they're an expat, if they're following flag theory or PT theory or any of these types of things, then this is a viable option for them. So there's just so many benefits to this style of education. I think it's, you know, taking the best of both worlds. And last thing I'll say about this is when I started working with Michael, you know, I had been interested in and wanting to do homeschooling for 20 some odd years. He sat me down and he said, Mikkel, this is homeschooling by professionals. And I was like, that's amazing. That is absolutely brilliant. So you, you, take the best of both worlds and combine them. So it's this hybrid model that ticks a lot of the boxes for my people. Yeah, and I think this is becoming possible thanks to the internet in a way that was not really possible before. Uh, well, I mean, it was possible before you could do it. What, what the internet allows is just a lot more flexibility in doing this and a lot more resources available to anybody. So any parent can access an enormous amount of resources. Great thing about it is having the freedom of the child moving around between different interests and different activities and different topics and uh, having the freedom of their day. This is this is the thing that kind of uh, I feel most bitter about going to school is when I think of just all the time of my life that was wasted engaging in the industrial production of education, you know, in, in engaging in the rituals associated with this stuff rather than just spending that time learning out of my own interest, following my own uh, passions as with, with self-directed learning. So it's good to have that freedom, but it's good that when you have a question that you are able to, when a child has a question, that you're able to get them somebody to answer that question uh, who has true expertise in that topic, who knows about it very well, because by the time your kid is, I imagine, nine or 10, they're going to have interests about things that you don't know and don't understand and can't satisfy them with. You know, that there's, they're going to like baseball and you don't know baseball. They're going to like uh, piano and you don't like piano. They're, you know, by age eight or nine, there's definitely going to be things where you're going to want other people. The status, the industrialization of education has made it so that it's a one big giant package and you have to take it all. You have to take the entire package of sending your kid all day to be in an institution with hundreds of strangers uh, that you don't know, that you know nothing about, and just trusting that they're going to do all the right things all throughout the whole day. I very much like the aspect of a personal relationship of, you know, oh, well, now's the time for your chemistry teacher. We're going to get you a chemistry teacher, and we're going to get some of your friends who are interested in chemistry, and you guys can all have a, a chemistry class. And then you have a relationship with the chemistry teacher. You can get to know them. You can keep an eye on them. And, you know, if, if, if you don't like some of the things that they talk about to your kids, uh, you can get another chemistry teacher. You know, you don't have to go through a giant institution, which is usually state funded and state controlled and state regulated. And so everything is complicated and try and convince them that, no, this chemistry teacher happens to be bad. We need another one. You don't have to convince anyone. You convince yourself. That's uh, an enormous, enormous distinction in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely believe that. And in your example of the chemistry teacher, maybe for another family, that chemistry teacher is fantastic. So you go out there, cancel culture, someone tries to get that person fired. Now, what are the repercussions for them? Maybe other people like that person. With your own family doing it a homeschool model and hiring people on your own, people are naturally going to float to the top and be the best at their job. I mean, it's free market enterprise. Exactly. We don't need to, you know, convince or or have our will subject 
you know, subject anyone else to our will. We can make our own decisions for our family and we don't have to re rely on these large states for this. Absolutely. Daniel has a question for you and Daniel has also lived this life for a while. Daniel has four kids and they homeschool and they travel the world. Yeah, Daniel. How are you doing, guys? It's so nice to hear other people talking about this shit rather than just me. <laughs> oh, hey, Dan, I know you. <laughs> I yeah, didn't notice until I saw the, the surname. How's things, brother? Very, very good. Very good. Good good to tune into this one. Good to see that you're still trying to starve the beast every day that you wake up, Mikel. You're doing us all uh, a great favor. Yeah, uh, it's so, like I said, it's so nice to hear other people um, talk about this. And, and safe. I, I just went into Jimmy in, uh, in Riga with his whole family, and he's doing the whole world schooling thing with his family, going from conference to conference, mixing work and Bitcoin and family and world school. This is the way. Yeah, it's it's awesome. But not to harp on this too much because I, I know people have heard me talk about it a lot. I want to switch it up. One thing we've been really struggling with as a community and trying to find a solution to is commercial travel. We're just so sick of it. Like cancelled flights, lost luggage, um, <laughs> the NSA, you know, whatever they're called in your particular country. And what are the hacks here that we, other than learning to fly and buy our own planes? You took my option away from me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is there anything else that you advise clients to do or um, other than like chartering your own jets, which seems like uh, ridiculously uh, expensive? So I, I had it open on my browser up until probably yesterday and I started closing things, but we've actually started looking at chartering jets now. Now, I originally thought it was going to cost an absolute fortune. We want to do a trip to, to the Cayman Islands, and there's no direct flights from Panama City to the Cayman Islands. You actually, in most cases, have to fly through Miami, and I refuse to fly through the States anymore because I've just had horrendous experiences traveling through U.S. borders, especially with children. They don't allow you to stay airside, which is completely ridiculous. So you have to collect all of your baggage and go through immigration. And because my wife is from China, there's always all these extra questions. And it's just a complete pain. So I won't fly through the States anymore. And we were looking at chartering a flight. And I think it was about $6,000 for a six-seater plane to go direct to, to the Cayman Islands. Now, okay, that's one way. So, so return, you're talking about $12,000. But we travel with my mother because my, my mother lives with us. She helps care for my kids. I think it's important to have grandkids around and extended family. And we also travel with our nanny. So we'd fill that plane by ourselves. And if I had to buy business class tickets for everyone, it's going to be maybe a tiny bit cheaper, but not a whole heck of a lot cheaper. So I would look at any of these types of aggregator flight planning tools where you can book charter flights. If I can find the app that I was looking at, I'll send it to, to Safe and maybe you can put it in the show notes. Or, or Dan, you and I are friends, so we can uh, send it to, I can send it to you on WhatsApp or on Telegram or whatever. Yeah, I'll be following up with you on this one, Mikkel, for sure. Thank you. Um, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, as always, Safe, thanks for doing this. Um, great, great interview. Um, Amazing. Yeah, I look forward to catching up. Nice one. Thanks, Danny. All right, great. Um, Peter has a question for you. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that, Mikhail. Really fascinating stuff. I wanted to ask a bit more about birth tourism and the prospect of having your child in a country that uh, is not your birth country. You mentioned that you'd had your daughter in Brazil 
And I wondered if you could share some other examples of countries and maybe talk a bit about the advantages that that can bring both to the parents and to um, the children. Yeah, so my daughter was born in Abu Dhabi. Unfortunately, they don't allow birth, like if the child is born in the country, they don't become a national of that country. The father would actually have to be born. Now, my son was born in Brazil. And what you will find is when you look at most of the Americas, South America, Central America, North America, the Caribbean, all of these countries, not all, but let's say in 90 some odd percentage of the times, they will allow the the child to become a citizen of that country. So it doesn't really matter which country you pick. If you you know want to be in Costa Rica or you want to be in Mexico or you want to be in Brazil like we were, the child should get citizenship through that country. Now you're going to have to show some type of extra documentation, you know, all of the paperwork, which gets a little bit arduous. But if you are working with a professional like me, then you know, we prepare you for these types of things when you go in. Now, I don't deal with every single country in Latin America or in, um, in the Americas for these types of things, but I can at least advise you on which countries to pick and which countries are going to be slightly better and which ones are going to be too much work and you know, at least set you up with a, a local lawyer who will be able to walk you through the nitty-gritty details of each one. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do you have like a top three countries, set of countries that you would recommend to people? Or does it yeah, really depend sure. on circumstance? Hmm. Well, I mean, so obviously I'm, I'm a big fan of Brazil because as we talked about with the family reunification visa. Now, after going through the program myself, I think that Brazil is probably one of the most bureaucratic countries in the world, which is such a nightmare to go through. So you have to have a, a strong tolerance for pain if you're going to do Brazil. I think that Mexico is a very good option. I have two friends literally in the last week or so who have done birth tourism in Mexico, and that seemed to be a lot simpler. The really nice thing about Mexico is, okay, obviously the child becomes a citizen and the parents can become a permanent resident, but actually the grandchildren, sorry, the grandparents can also become a permanent residence in Mexico. So that kind of skips a lot of the immigration problems with going through a temporary residency and you know each family member having to go through their own. The child is born there, the parents, the grandparents, everybody gets permanent residency and you can live and build your life there. I had a conversation, I was, I was interviewed on another podcast earlier in the week and we had this a similar conversation. He was asking me like, why don't you pick Panama as a place? Like you love Panama and you live in Panama. Well, I said, I don't pick Panama as my top three because I'm already here and we already have permanent residency and it's so easy to get permanent residency here, which can lead to citizenship through naturalization. So I want to pick places where it's more difficult to get into or where there's these added benefits. Uh, he did birth tourism with his fourth child, I think it was. He chose Costa Rica. And he said the experience for that was really, really good. So maybe that might be another place that people should look into. Nice. Thomas, you have another question? Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, you know, something you mentioned here uh, about, you know, living this life or, you know, living the expert life. It's all about uh, personal responsibility. But also we see a lot of people, uh, you know, leave their country, especially people who live in third world country, they go to countries like, you know, in Europe or in North America. They're basically seeking, uh, you know, welfare or seeking something that doesn't exist in their home country. So that's like basically, and that's, I guess that's the majority, right? 
So uh, they're, they're doing this for the opposite reasons uh, that you mentioned. So I wanted, I wanted to get your views on uh, the next uh, phase in this, where, in my opinion, I see uh, the world moving away from the welfareist nation state to the, you know, uh, more of the, you know, individual sovereignty case, you know, where, where maybe we, we will see in the future more countries or microstates inviting certain individuals or giving them benefits for being, you know, skillful or maybe you know, giving them taxation cuts or whatever. I just wanted to get your view on this. What do you think? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much, Thomas, for, for joining us and, and for, for your question. So my opinion is that we are going to see more welfare, not less, in the world. And I'm 100% against this. I believe in entrepreneurship and personal responsibility, which we discussed earlier. I want to encourage people to take more responsibility for their lives. And I do think that you are right that we will see a proliferation of small communities and, and states. Uh, Peter's on the call today, and, and I know Peter, and he does some amazing work with the Free Cities Institute, and I'm an ambassador for them. I am a Liberland citizen, and I'm the ambassador of Liberland to Panama. Um, I have a lot to do with the projects in Prospera. I talk to those guys on a you know very regular basis. I'm best friends with the people who from Ocean Builders and are trying to do floating cities out there in the world. And what I think we'll see is as this welfare state and, and government just go absolutely out of control, we're going to see massive amounts of human flight and capital flight, and they will be relocating themselves to places where they're more in line. I think it's actually going to be one of the biggest trends over the next, say, 10 to 20 years will be these small charter cities and private cities and alternative living communities. I believe in it so much that I study it every day, and I, I'm so involved in these types of things, and I'm investing in the projects, not just my own money, but my time and my expertise and consulting with a lot of these people. And I think it looks very bright for people who, you know, will take the responsibility to, to grow something new. And as we exit from the system, then there's going to be like a lot less or possibly zero things that these governments can do. You know, once you're no longer reliant on the healthcare or their banking system or their education system, all of the things that we've talked about today, I mean, their power and their control just diminishes. And it's so positive and I'm so looking forward to these types of things. And that's why I'm trying to spread the, the message of freedom and liberty and peace and prosperity and, and responsibility. So I'm, I'm not quite sure if I answered your question, but that's certainly my, my opinion about these types of things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for this. Awesome. Another question from Kyle Beck. Great, great topics. My family's um, British, I'm a U.S. citizen, and I was curious on, you mentioned earlier your Irish citizenship and just seeing the values, benefits that are currently there. I'm already on the birth record from what you referenced a grandparent that's um, uh, got pushed out of Ireland at an early age and then there. And so just rolling back through that process and just curious what your take is today. Yeah, I think that if you're able to go through the program, then it is certainly worthwhile. Irish citizenship is one of the most powerful passports in the world. 
I mean, I would probably put it in the top five, top six most powerful passports. Wow. I certainly recommend working with a local lawyer on these things. This is not something you want to try to figure out yourself. The local lawyer will, okay, obviously be able to do the legal work for the application of the citizenship. But more than that, they'll have someone on their department or someone who works for them, whether that be a researcher or a paralegal, but someone who will be able to gather a lot of the documents. So usually the best thing for a grandparent is if you can know the date that they were born or at least the year and the city or town that they were born in. That will really narrow down a lot of the the search for whoever's doing these types of things. I wish that I would have known you five to 10, 15 years <laughs> ago. Um, it was a painful process to go get original birth certificate. I've, got, I've done all that homework myself. Oh my and goodness. literally in the a spot of actually just getting the passport right now, which got turned down once and back again and kind of like, well, it's just simple little things of a translation error. Um, yeah. But um, so and some of the reasons, what, what, what um, in particular do you see the value of that, that citizenship, that passport, if you will, um, what, what you rank it up there in the top five, what, what kinds of things um, can we evaluate for the others in other countries to kind of ping that against? Good question. So usually when we're looking at passports and citizenship, one of the first metrics we're going to look at is visa-free travel. Now, Irish is part of the, Ireland is part of the EU, so obviously you're going to have unfeathered access to the Schengen zone, which is basically a, a travel zone in um, member states. Okay, it's for money and it's for goods and all of these types of things. But from our point of view, it has to do with you know your ability to live and work in the country. Now, on top of that, Irish has great reputation around the world. So as you enter other countries, you're going to, you know, be able to piggyback on that good reputation and visit many countries in the world. And to put things in perspective on the, the, the nominal value of this citizenship, I can give you a comparison. So we do a citizenship by investment in Malta, and this is a donation to the government. So you give your money and you get the citizenship back. And it costs about a million one million, one point one, one point two million dollars, depending on how you do it. Wow. Okay. And the Irish citizenship and the Malta citizenship are pretty much on parity. So what you have done is you have earned yourself what other people are paying a million dollars for. Okay. So although it uh, was probably a very frustrating and painful experience to go through, it was certainly Exactly. <laughs> it was certainly uh, worthwhile the time. So congratulations. That's amazing. We're not done yet, but we're closer. All right. Well, we're running over our allotted time. This has been a lot of fun. I want to be mindful of not taking more of your time. And I want to thank you so much for joining us and for all this very, very useful information that I hope my listeners will uh, value and benefit from. Pleasure is all mine. So if people want to find out more about what I do, I encourage you to go to expatmoney.com. We are putting out new blog articles every day. We're talking about different countries, the immigration, the wealth protection strategies, everything like that. Uh, on top of that, we are hosting a summit, the Expat Money Summit, coming up in November. Tickets are free. I encourage you to, to get a ticket. Doug Casey is a speaker. Ron Paul is a speaker. 
Jim Rogers, we just got noticed that Jim Rogers will be a speaker at the event, but we also have probably about 30 speakers that you will never have heard their name before. And that's because they are the lawyers that I work with and the real estate developers and the CPAs and accountants and everything like that, that I work with in many different countries. So if you guys are interested in the topic of internationalization, then I encourage you to go to expatmoneysummit.com and sign up pick up a, a free ticket on there. Yeah, very happy to be here today, Safe, and, and uh, happy to help any of your, your subscribers and your listeners uh, with these process. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure meeting you online, and I hope to get to meet you in person someday. Definitely. In Turkey, in Istanbul. We'll meet over there. Yeah, inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mikhail. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks, guys.